0: Welcome to Let's Talk Agriculture. In part two of the podcast, Oliver McIntyre chats with Tom Morrison, an international agricultural consultant, about the importance of managing one of your farm's biggest assets, soil, and what happens when livestock are removed from a farming system. If you haven't listened to part one of this episode, in which Oliver provides the latest news from the field, with insight covering everything from arable, poultry, and livestock to finance, You can download it from the Let's Talk Business podcast channel. Here's Oliver talking with Tom Morrison. Hi,
1: everyone, and welcome back to part two. UK agriculture is going to see some quite significant changes in the coming six, eight, ten years. And perhaps sometimes farming systems we might not have considered five years ago as something we're going to have to look at as the future changes and evolves in front of us. Hopefully the idea of today is to give you some talking points, to expand some thoughts and certainly I think what we are going to see in the next five to ten years is the jigsaw of UK agriculture and environmental management that comes together because there is no one solution to the future that we have. I've got the pleasure today of welcoming Tom Morrison, an international agricultural consultant and we'll be talking about protecting one of any farm's biggest assets, soil. Tom, welcome to Let's Talk Agriculture. How are you? Hello, Oliver. I'm fine, thank you. Excellent, excellent. I'm sure everybody wants to hear about your interesting and varied career. So tell me a little bit about it and your global farming experiences.
2: Well, Oliver, it it all started at university. I spent five years reading agriculture, tropical agronomy and development economics, and then three years as district agriculture officer for the government of Zambia. This bounced me into consultancy for global development aid, which was then taking off and which is now huge. I had three years with Massey Ferguson, based in Rome, and we stayed there for 15 years. Rome also has the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is the UN's biggest agency, and several development banks or parts of development banks. There's the International Fund for Agricultural Development, the World Bank. Asian and African development banks, and others like them. Because I was travelling a lot, it was some consolation for the family to be based there. I started mainly in tropical countries, but the fall of communism in turn bounced me into Central and Eastern Europe and countries of the former USSR. In 45 years, I think I worked in 42 countries, visiting several of them multiple times. Part of my work was for concessional aid directed at food security for small farmers, but there was commercial work too. In particular, the big development banks gave soft loans to governments, but the money on the ground went to emerging commercial farmers at commercial rates. In another example, support to oil palm in Indonesia was directed at outgrowers delivering to central factories. I was also a non-executive director of Landcom, a 120,000-hectare London-based commercial farm enterprise in Ukraine, and the biggest grower of oilseed rape in Europe. Towards the end of my career, I worked almost exclusively for the European Commission, which is now, I think, the
1: world's biggest aid donor. Wow, amazing, Tom. I think I've had quite a varied career, but you certainly put me in the shade with all that. Amazing. Amazing. Our focus today is on soil management and there's a great deal of noise about carbon, greenhouse gas, natural capital and and rightfully so in the modern world. However there's also a lot of discussion about the red meat sector with some advocating we reduce dramatically or in some cases even stop farming cattle altogether. How do you feel when you hear views like that Tom? Well I suppose
2: I'd better start on a positive note. So I feel it's great to get the general public's attention focused on problems of such huge game-changing importance. It's also easy to blame the media who want to focus on headline-grabbing topics like farting cows, but actually the issue is much, much broader than this, and farmers and bankers know this too. Second, red meat in these discussions is often treated as a unified commodity, but the range of farming systems and practices, and hence the carbon footprint used to produce it is enormous, ranging from the ultra-extensive, with once a year mustering on natural ranges in Australia, to ultra-intensive, grain and antibiotic dependent feedlots in the USA. Some of the red meat on that very wide spectrum is good for carbon greenhouse gases and climate change, and some of it is not. Thirdly, the global life cycle approach can produce very different answers to carbon footprints compared to the narrower enterprise cycle approach. And that's where a lot of people have fallen down. Fourth, and perhaps most important, we really get to choose how to raise red meat. It's the landscape and land use optimization that choose that for us. Is farming mainly about food production? Well, during and after the Second World War, we would have said yes. I'm 73 and growing up I had five years of food rationing. My older brothers had more years of food rationing and are consequently shorter than me. Now so many other things that farming delivers are collectively becoming more important. Landscape, flood mitigation and water storage, carbon sequestration, public access, biodiversity, clean air and storage of natural capital. Food production is, of course, still important, but it's quality of food production that's important, not quantity. Nutrient-dense, properly raised, quality red meat can help prevent obesity as part of a balanced diet. I think it's useful to regard red meat almost as an incidental product of a sustainable farming system that is dictated by the chosen or dictated land use, not as a primary farming product in its own right. That's going a little bit far, but it helps you to get it in the right perspective. Finally, by the way, I'm not sure that carbon and greenhouse gases should be the primary metric for measuring sustainability. I think it should be much simpler, fossil
1: fuel use. That's the elephant in the room. Tom, I remember back to my early days at agricultural college and, and to be honest, a lot of what I've done since. And those with a good agricultural knowledge understand the key to soil conditioning is organic matter. And this has a huge impact on crop yields and also, of course, the soil's ability to soak up and hold water. Clearly, livestock are a key driver in managing soil organic matter.
2: Yes, Oliver, that's absolutely right. Good arable farmers will say, and they're right to say it, that with zero and minimum till machinery, they can also build soil organic matter. But livestock do it better in both physical and financial senses. Added to that, livestock profitably utilise break crops that even the best arable farmers have to incorporate into their crop rotations. It's the same with individual farms and enterprise costing. If you analyse, say, an arable crop, the gross margin may be higher than a livestock enterprise. But all the time the black grass or other invasive weed species is building up until eventually you need a break crop, ideally for several years. Then you need something to utilize that break crop, generally livestock. So narrow enterprise costing may have given you a false indication. Added to that, you're building the sort of soil fertility you can't get out of a bag. And of course, you're building the organic matter you're reducing risk, and you're diversifying your enterprises and outputs. As a pasture-for-life beef farmer, I need to say at this point, why not keep that livestock enterprise low cost, low labour, and extensive? And there's no need to defeat the object of the exercise by growing more arable crops to feed the livestock in an attempt to make the enterprise gross margin comparable to the arable crops. And that's what a lot
1: of people do. Soils low or even devoid of organic matter can have huge impacts, not just on on sort of carbon and, and water holding capacity, but also on population, can't they? And you have quite a stark example of that, don't you, Tom?
2: Yes, I do, Oliver. This may seem irrelevant to UK farming. But yes, the example of what is now known as the Great Famine of the late 1990s in North Korea in which 3 million died out of a population of 21 million, was indeed tragic. It's a long story in which I visited North Korea more than a dozen times, accumulating almost a year in the country, when I worked in eight of the nine provinces. But I can make a long story brief. On my second visit, I was leading a team for IFAD, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, and we decided that the problem as distressingly awful as it was, was fundamentally simple. No rotations in the arable system and almost no livestock. We proposed to the IFAD board that we should invest over $30 million persuading the North Koreans of this simple truth. Somewhat to our surprise, the board agreed. A prime condition of the loan was the inclusion of a four-course rotation which led to the introduction of more livestock. As simple as that. The project was in itself hugely successful, but more than that, all the other aid donors to North Korean farming swung in behind Ifad and also made these rotations and livestock a condition of their aid. And finally, the greatest prize... The Ministry of Agriculture at national level adopted this way of farming as official policy and is now applying it countrywide. It may seem irrelevant to UK farming, but actually it's a question of degree. I don't think the UK is likely to lose 15% of its population to starvation any time soon. But if you ask me, have UK soils fallen to their lowest ever organic matter status, are they less resilient to weather extremes as a result? If we have to quickly draw down on built-up soil fertility, as we have done in the past, could we do it to the same extent? And is farming as a whole, and are some farms more fragile, less resilient, and more financially risky? Then the answer
1: is yes, yes, no, and yes. Gosh, what a, an amazing impact from the removal of, of livestock from a farming system. How, how long did it take to get the soils back into a sort of reasonably productive level and, and increase the soil organic matter, Tom?
2: Well, it's not back yet. It's been 20 years now and crop yields are still climbing slowly under what FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, calls Conservation Agriculture and yields are still not back to the levels of the 1980s. And North Korea is still not self-sufficient in food production as it is aiming to be, and historically was. In a nutshell, it needs roughly 5 million tonnes of paddy rice equivalent annually, and is still roughly a million tonnes short every year. The point is that the North Koreans and the international aid community didn't recognise till too late that soil fertility had been declining since the country's formation and farm collectivisation in the 1950s. Now, does that sound familiar, I wonder? Let me come back to that in a moment. Then it reached a tipping point in the 1990s, and a few external events were all that was needed to show that the apparently ever-resilient soil actually had no resilience left. It physically collapsed. Let's just go back to what I said a moment ago. I said, does that sound familiar? This is the crux of what I'm talking about. The UK's arable soil organic matter is at a dangerously low level. The day before yesterday, I was talking to a a very wise and distinguished agriculturist. And he said, referring to soil organic matter on a large arable estate near Milton Keynes, that we're sleepwalking into a potential disaster we're approaching a potential tipping point. Now, add to that more weather extremes that global warming is bringing us, and we get more variable yields due to droughts, we get floods, we get soil erosion. And add to that some unforeseen international crisis, and we get to the sort of tipping point that North Korea experienced. In short, low soil organic matter makes the UK as a whole and indeed any country, more fragile.
1: Tom, you are also a farmer in your own right, amongst all the other roles and the backdrop of your international career. Tell us a little bit about your farm. It's 168
2: acres of permanent pasture in North Buckinghamshire. My wife and I bought it in 1992 and started properly farming it 10 years ago, and I stopped my international work two years ago. When I thought about starting to farm, I applied all the tests to conventional UK farming that an international development bank would apply to project designs that I used to prepare for developing countries. It failed all those tests. Regarding those banking tests, I remember Rome-based FAO Investment Centre review meetings. Well, they could be terrifying. The FAO Investment Centre was set up to prepare projects for the World Bank, the Asian and African Development Banks, International Fund for Agricultural Development, and other funding agencies. The review panels were made up of some very experienced and distinguished experts. And in a few words, they could dismiss a project design that a team leader and his team had been working on for several weeks and at great expense. So, what were those tests? They weren't, primarily at least, financial rates of return or economic rates of return or profit and loss accounts or balance sheets, though those had to be included too, of course. The review panel experts had cooked and tweaked enough of those in their time to brush them aside. They'd go for the fundamentals. Risk, resilience, good husbandry, sustainability, soil fertility, exposure of beneficiary farmers to financial treadmills, ease of implementation, and productivity. Then I thought, should we go organic? I remember the FAO's definition at the time, which loosely speaking was something like, it's a passing phase, a niche market for those that can afford it, and it won't feed the world. Actually, I probably wasn't clever enough to go organic, and I do admire those who've been successful at it. But then I thought, you can feed organic grain or organic soya to an organic cow and still call the product organic. That, to me, is wrong. A ruminant has evolved to ruminate. And this habit of feeding grain to ruminants is actually quite recent, I remember at university in the mid-1960s learning about the famous Dr. Preston of Reading University who had just completed the early barley beef trials. Abundant fertiliser and agrochemicals, cheap oil and ever bigger farm machinery had ushered in an era of cheap grain. This was a revolution. Now it's considered normal. But it's only 50 years old. So, I dismissed the organic route, And then after more research, I discovered the Pasture for Life Association, the PFLA, which then had fewer than 10 members. It immediately made complete sense to me. The PFL system is, one could say, beyond organic. Combining the two, as many members of the PFLA do, is really quite special. But if I had to choose one or the other, then my choice is PFL. And it's easier to do. Back to those fundamental tests that I'd learnt so rigorously over the previous 45 years, the PFLA passes them all with flying colours. And that's also been my experience over the last 10 years.
1: Tom, you are clearly a strong believer in the Pasture for Life movement. What do you feel are the the best benefits of farming the way you do?
2: Well, Oliver, first and very much foremost, it's the quality and taste of the beef we produce. We have many enthusiastic letters, emails, and text messages saying so from customers. A common thread in what they say is surprise. They say they just didn't know what really good beef tastes like, and that's just from the people who eat it. But the butchers are equally enthusiastic. One of the butchers we supply has put on his website, this is simply the best beef we've ever seen. He also told me he has customers who will regularly drive 50 miles out of London to collect our beef. He, too, and another butcher we supply have become enthusiastic members of the PFLA. Not only does it taste good, there's now solid evidence of the human health benefits of PFL meat and dairy. Second, from a farming viewpoint, there are two main and fundamental advantages. Our costs are low. Well, for a start, you don't feed any grain. And we produce a premium product on which we can charge a premium price, which butchers and consumers are happy to pay. That's a magic combination. So, are we in clover? No, not yet. Our market penetration is tiny, but slowly we're moving mainstream. The public are confused by the current labelling muddle, in which grass-fed means, in law, predominantly grass-fed. That means more than 50%, which is ridiculous for a farm that guarantees 100%. We hope that will change soon to an auditable percentage value of grass-fed for all farmers. The PFLA standard is 100%. Other beef is generally much less than this, and we expect that the law will require farmers to say how much less. I believe there are other advantages from a farm management viewpoint. It's a low lab- labour enterprise. It's just me on a day-to-day basis on a quad bike. And occasionally I have to call in a neighbour to help with sorting the cattle. We use contractors to make the hay and muck out the barn. Second of these other advantages, the PFL system fits easily with the requirements of environmental stewardship and with the coming ELMS environmental land management scheme almost all our cattle are out all year this can't all be attributed to the pfl system we're lucky enough to have sand capped hills but for any farm island breeds which tend to be smaller than continental breeds and don't poach the ground in the winter so much are suitable feeding of hay in the winter is outside from a quad bike and trailer and this is low cost and builds soil organic matter Feeding outside keeps the dung beetles going all year, which is hugely important for building and maintaining soil fertility and drainage. From my experience, PFL cattle are healthier and live longer, thus contributing to lower costs. We can show that our vet bills are about one-third of the national average. It's true that the PFL system takes longer to finish animals. Ours average 27 or 28 months at slaughter. But since our costs are low, it's no big deal. Selling our meat direct in couriered boxes has become hugely popular since coronavirus. People see it as an alternative to restaurants and going out. When we were doing box beef, our margins increased by two and a half times. A final point. We're all talking about carbon sequestration, especially farmers even the general public in casual conversation. Many of them think that trees are the answer and in some situations they are part of the answer but they're far from being a silver bullet. For a start, you can't eat trees and you can't easily incorporate them into an arable rotation. On the other hand, well-managed pasture can sequester more carbon per acre per year than trees can. You can eat the animals that graze it and pasture and grassland support more livelihoods than forestry does, 70% of this green and pleasant land is already pasture.
1: Thank you for your time today, Tom. It's been absolutely fascinating. Now, I've got one last question for you, Tom. A man of your experience should be able to answer this really easily. If I could give you one wish for UK agriculture in the coming 10 years, what would that be?
2: Just before I answer that, Oliver, it's been a great pleasure to... Give me the freedom to have a beef, if you'll excuse the expression, (laughs) about what I do. To answer your question, I think almost all farmers now appreciate that whether they like it or not, huge changes are coming to UK agriculture in the framework of the new agriculture and environment bills and the support they aim to provide. My wish is that all farmers and their advisors and bankers Look at how they might incorporate the PFL system on their farms. It can be a relatively small enterprise on large arable farms, few of which are on 100% grade 1 soils, and most of which have some well-drained land where stock can outwinter. I know that many farmers are looking at forestry, but to me PFL offers a more attractive alternative on most soils. I believe very few farms are truly sustainable without livestock in the rotation. At the other end of the spectrum are dedicated dairy farms. Some of them are operating on slim margins with high costs and looking at eye-watering capital investments to improve efficiency. PFL could offer an alternative. We have a lot of interest just now from such farms in Northern Ireland. In the middle are mixed farms, more dependent than most on the basic payment schemes, the area payments, and wondering how to position themselves to catch the financial support that will continue but under ELMS, not under the basic payment scheme. Don't get me wrong, a wholesale switch to PFL is unnecessary. Most farms can benefit from a modest scale diversification on just a small part of their farms. Little changes on big farms can have a big impact on meeting our target of net zero carbon by 2050.
1: Thanks, Tom. It's been a great pleasure having you on our first ever podcast. And I'm sure everybody listening in will have found many of the points raised really interesting and informative. Well, that is it. There is no more for this episode. I can't quite believe we've come to the end of it, but hopefully you found it informative, useful and maybe just giving you some food for thought. If you've enjoyed listening in, please subscribe and you'll receive a notification when we release our next podcast. Again, we'll be looking at some of the latest insights within agriculture and taking a deeper look into some important topics facing UK farming businesses today. Thanks again for listening.
0: You've been listening to the Let's Talk Agriculture podcast. Don't forget to download part one from our podcast channel to hear the latest news from the field. We also have a Let's Talk Brokers podcast featuring the latest market insights and delving deeper into other topics and issues facing brokers. You can find it on our Let's Talk Business channel. Make money work for you. Barclays Bank UK PLC takes no responsibility for the veracity of information intimated by a third party and no warranties or undertakings of any kind, whether express or implied, regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information given. Barclays Bank UK plc takes no liability for the impact of any decisions made based on information contained and views expressed